Welcome to Catch Our Drift, the podcast for people who love the sea, brought to you by Necton in partnership with the One Ocean Flotilla. I'm Helen Scales, marine biologist and author who writes about the sea. And I'm Oliver Steeds, Necton Mission Director and a not very good submersible pilot. In this pod series, we're exploring how the passion, plight and peril of the ocean seeps into so many different parts of our lives. This week on Catch Our Drift, it's all about art. How art can inspire and challenge our perceptions of the ocean, our planet and ourselves, and also how art can be a driver for conservation and change. We're going to be talking to some influential artists who are leading the way. They're showing that art is not only something to enjoy and ignite people's imagination, but it can create spaces out in the real world where conservation takes place. Marcus Ryman has set up an exhibition space in Venice aimed at inspiring both ocean imagination and ocean action. And legendary American artist and pioneer of visual and performance art, Joan Jonas, will tell us how she drew on the power of myth to create her spectacular ocean installations. We'll be hearing from them both later. But first, we welcome onto the pod an artist and environmentalist described as the Jacques Cousteau of the art world, who in 2006 created the world's first underwater sculpture park in the clear tropical waters of the coast of Grenada in the Caribbean. That's now listed as one of the top 25 wonders of the world by National Geographic. And since then, he's been installing thought-provoking and hauntingly beautiful artworks all around the waterways of the world. From four horsemen of the climate apocalypse on the banks of the River Thames, overlooking the Houses of Parliament, to the world's largest underwater sculpture, Ocean Atlas in the Bahamas, depicting a local girl carrying the weight of the ocean on her shoulders. Jason Takeris Taylor, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me on the show. It's lovely to have you with us. Now, you and I were last in touch a couple of years ago um, when I wrote about coral reefs for a book of beautiful photographs of your sculptures, um, including the incredible silent evolution in Cancun, Mexico, with more than 400 statues of people based on people from the local fishing community. And they, they now stand together on the seabed as this this powerful community defending their ocean. But you have been very busy since then, and you've got lots more stuff going on, including, most recently, a collection of sculptures off the coast of France. Now, what can you tell us about these these new sculptures? Uh, yes, yeah, so they're, they're only recently completed. Um, it's the first time I've worked in the, the Mediterranean Sea, which has yeah, been really fascinating. And so this, this was quite exciting, working in a completely different ecosystem, you know, completely different conditions and marine fauna. So yeah, we just installed them. They're, they're very shallow. They're only uh, a metre below the surface. They're very large scale works and they're really just designed for snorkelers to visit. But they're placed within these um, beautiful Posidonia meadows. And, you know, I think when we associate we have the imagery of you know the the underwater world we often sort of think of coral reefs as being the most beautiful part of of our seas where that in fact you know some there's some incredible other areas and and the Posidonia is fantastic as an artist it oscillates with the waves it moves it you know creates this sort of really dreamy landscape seascape I should say so yeah no it's great great project to work on so you've got this long wavy seagrass and then your statues are these enormous faces, these masks, I suppose, if that's the right way of putting it. And they're based on people from the local community in Cannes, is that right? That's correct, yes. So a few years ago, I think I did around 50 different castings of, of local people. And then from those castings, uh, I made these these large pieces. And it, it sort of, again, it's meant to sort of engage the local community within with marine conservation issues. Um, and so it features a 60-year-old fisherman who's fished the Mediterranean all his life. 
and it also uh, depicts some young, a young student, an eight-year-old young girl. And so there's, there's a variety of people and, and it's sort of meant, it's meant to be a sort of metaphor for the sea, whereas you know, when we look at our oceans and we see this huge expanse, this robust and resilient <laughs> air mass, and then, but actually when you look beneath the surface, it's actually a very fragile environment, a very intricate and precious place. And I, and I hope the expressions of these pieces uh, relay that. Why have you called it a museum rather than, than anything else that you could have done? One of the reasons why we called it a museum is, is to sort of change our, our relationship to the seabed. You know, when we think of museums, we think of places of precious objects, of, of uh, conservation, keeping things that, that are important to us. And I kind of wanted to relay that same sentiment to the underwater world where it's actually a privilege to go underwater. It's, it's you know, a unique and incredible environment that we need to preserve much more than we've been doing so far. So how do you hope that your sculptures will challenge our aesthetic? I mean, I think we need a lot more empathy with our natural world um, and we need to completely change our relationship. And I think we're incredibly sort of self-centred. It helps to understand the natural world by putting ourselves in, in that location and putting ourselves in that place. And I, I think we always try to sort of humanise everything, everything we do in order to interpret it. So I try to use art to um, make people, you know, aware of, of what's there. We understand the world through stories, through narratives, through, through images. You know, we have so much scientific data and there's so much research and, and it's so critically important and it's, you know, threatens the, the, our entire species. But we can't seem to connect to it. We can't seem to see the gravity of, of what's happening without putting ourselves in that place, without being able to feel or, or emote. And so I kind of hope that art can play a strong role in, in making that connection and, and making people feel more, I think. I completely agree. And I think, yeah, there's such an important role that art has in challenging our understanding of who we are and our relationship to ourselves, to our natural world, to our planet. And it's a key aspect of your work. It's not just art, it's, it combines activism. What more can the art world do, do you feel, to really take on and represent the challenges which we have now, to inspire our understanding of who we are and our place in the world? You know, well, I think it's, it's the fundamental issue of our times, you know. We are living, I hate to use the word, because <laughs> unprecedented. I think we really uh, do have such an important role to play in, in, in bringing it into the mainstream. You know, it, it's not a, a fringe issue anymore. It, it, is, it threatens our, our entire species. So definitely, I think artists should be shouting it from the rooftops and changing a bit how we look. I think, you know, there's, it's not just about art as an object, you know, I also think it's art as a, a practical solution as well. I mean, thinking about your, your new sculptures in, in Cannes off the coast uh, in the Mediterranean in France, I guess, hopefully, the, uh, when it's all started up again and we have the, the film festival happening and the great and the good, maybe they'll be visiting and they can stick on a snorkel and a mask and jump in the ocean and have a look at these sculptures of yours being taken back you know, or taken into the ocean and, and becoming part of this seascape. Um, I guess, what, what do you hope they might take away from that experience and uh, think about perhaps a bit more once they've seen your work in its environment, becoming part of the environment? Well, I, I mean, first of all, I, I hope to get more people in it, you know, to go and visit underwater in that site. It really is, you know, like I mentioned, the Posidonia is really spectacular and a crucially important habitat space. You know, it's a, it's a really productive and, and important part of the ecosystem. 
So just to make people aware of, of that and to hopefully um, encourage people not to anchor so much. So we've also, part of the project, we, we increased the big swimming area. So there's a no boating zone uh, along that part of the coastline with a with an aim to sort of prevent uh, so many people placing their anchors. So it would be nice if people took some of that uh, th- those messages away from visiting. Um, I like the idea of you t- just taking this, this inert object and just watching it change and, and grow and sort of reminding us that we are we are natural ourselves. We tend to think of man versus nature and it, I think, you know, we are part of nature and I kind of hope people take that, that away from it. So you're, I mean, I do encourage um, if you're listening uh, at home to uh, to go and have a look at um, some images of Jason's work and just to see how incredibly covered in life and full of life these sculptures become. Um, I mean, that is a key idea of your work. A lot of your work is designed specifically to try and encourage as much life as possible to move in. To you know, you've got structures for cr- lobsters to crawl into. A lot of fish will very quickly move in simply because it's a shelter and it's space for them to hide away from predators. And then, of course, the corals. I mean, these sculptures themselves are made out of uh, a material that really encourages corals and other life, larvae and um, sponges and algae and all those sorts of things to grow on. And so they turn into these multicoloured rainbow uh, reefs really quite quickly, don't they? I mean, this is astonishing how soon um, these things are sort of engulfed by life um, once you've put them in the ocean. Yes, extremely quickly. Uh, Sometimes it sort of catches me out how quickly they change. did a project in the Canary Islands um, a few years back and, and I was working obviously in the Atlantic Ocean. So I put the sculptures in and I thought I'll go back a week later and they'll still be the same. And uh, I went back two days later and they were just completely different. They were completely covered in green algae. They already had hundreds of little white calcareous worms that were forming skeletons on the surface. And I was just blown away. You know, that was only within days of installing them. Um, and again, a month later, they were completely different. And now they've been heavily colonized. And they've actually encouraged more marine life <laughs> than some of the tropical areas. And we had an area that was barren sand. And uh, we, we worked with a local university uh, and some marine biologists to conduct uh, investigations on it. And it increased, the biomass had increased by 200% within uh, I think a year and a half and it actually transpired that the more barren the landscape was <laughs> the more more things it attracted um, so we had yeah huge schools of fish and angel sharks uh, lots of different types of sponges it was, yeah it was really really exciting to see it is super cool and those angel sharks especially I'm like I desperately want to come and see your sculptures there and see these sharks because they're very endangered and the idea of having this one little part of the ocean where they still can be found in the Canaries, I think pretty much across the rest of the whole of the North Atlantic, they've they've pretty much gone. They, they were pretty much trawled out um, by industrial trawling and, and fishing. But there's this one little place in the, in the Canaries where they hang on. And I just love the idea that they're using your sculptures as a, as a refuge within that refuge and finding a, a place that's safe and... And, and then people can come and see them there. And just the idea that they're colonising these sculptures of yours, which are trying to deliver this, this powerful message of environmentalism, and just, it's just fantastic. It's just, yeah, interesting to see how the sort of the chain of life works, you know. And in that particular installation, it was just because the sculpture started to um, attract, you know, small juvenile fish. Uh, that was living around the legs of the sculptures. And then obviously that attracted sort of the next predator up. And then, uh, you know, eventually the angel sharks realized that there was some, uh, <laughs> yeah, good good meals to be had around there. 
But your sculptures do also have other um, conservation benefits directly. You know, physically, it really is creating opportunities to help protect those particular areas and have local conservationists perhaps generate some income. Am I right that, um, was it in Grenada that they were really central in, a, in setting up a marine protected area around, around the sculpture park? Is that right? In Grenada? The sculpture park was quite useful in, in creating this, uh, this MPA and creating the marine wardens that patrolled the coastline. And it's something that I then try to do in, in each location is, is to set up a management plan and how that will work going into the future. I think, as we can see, a common theme running through your work is this um, humanity's apathy uh, or denial about the problems of the Anthropocene. And the idea that we're sort of sleepwalking towards catastrophe. And I find some of those pieces the most effective that I've sort of seen pictures of. I'm thinking of things like the Rubicon in, in Lanzarote, which features dozens of full-size people walking across the seabed towards this underwater wall. And none of them have any idea they're about to approach uh, the point of no return because they're all looking at their phones. I mean, how is your work helping people to rethink or wake them up from this sleepwalking towards disaster? Uh, I think that depends on my mood on each day. Sometimes I'm very optimistic and sometimes I'm incredibly pessimistic about it. And I think public opinion is shifting dramatically and I think we're all getting more and more concerned for our natural world. But I also think humans have an inbuilt sense of, of denial, which I think we've had for <laughs> survival for many years. And I think now is going to be the critical point of turning our denial in, into constructive action and I, and I think the, the pandemic has also helped us in that I think we, we've now seen over the last year or so we we do have the ability to dramatically change course and and to make actions on a, on a global scale yeah absolutely I think we have to have that hope don't we otherwise it all just becomes a bit too much um, but we have to keep those messages out there if you provide something that that's you know a, a positive solution or, or a way for people to contribute or a way for people to make a difference, that is so much more inspiring and results in a, in a much greater change. Absolutely. I completely agree. I think just reminded me how important it is to, to give people that sense of optimism if we want to affect change. So what next? Do you have a, a, a vision or a, a plan for um, what's coming next? Definitely, definitely. You know, um, we've been still pretty busy <laughs> recently. Um, I've been working on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, building a project there for the last two years. And that's interesting because that sort of connects to what we've been talking about, uh, where we're making a series of underwater gardens and an and underwater greenhouse. Incredible. And I've also done a, another piece with a, with a, a group of marine biologists, which uh, is a land-based piece, but it's connected to an underwater weather station that is constantly recording uh, salinity and oxygen and, and water temperature. And the sculpture actually changes colour according to what temperature the Great Barrier Reef is out on one of the reef systems. And the idea is that if the corals are in risk of uh, bleaching, then the sculpture turns red like a sort of siren, like a warning signal. And it helps people, again, connect to what's happening in, in real time. Amazing. We need to clone you, I think. We need more of, uh, more of you, more of your artwork around the ocean. I've been trying to think of a, a, another project recently of of creating a, a, an extremely valuable sculpture, maybe made from gold or pearls or, or something, and putting it in a, in a difficult area, a sort of inaccessible area, and then having a series of clues that tell people how to find it. But you only can get a clue if you salvage 20 tonnes of marine plastic. And so you sort of, we get this worldwide community of people who, 
who are treasure hunters, but in order to get the treasure, they have to do an act of in, in some environmental good. Ooh, that sounds like fun. I like that. Jason, just one last question. If you were to go down in a sub to explore the deep, who would you like to go down with? I'd love to go down with Christo. He passed away last year. Um, but yeah, he, he would be an incredible person to, to explore the depths with. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with all your work. Um, maybe we'll see you at COP26. I think the politicians and public there really need people like you to help us challenge our views of the ocean and climate change. No, thank you very much for, for inviting me on. It's been a real, a real pleasure. So Oliver, remind me, who is Christo? Christo is an incredible artist. He's famous for wrapping whole structures like Berlin's Parliament, the Reichstag, which I think back in 1995, he wrapped in a kind of a silver fabric and it created a symbol of a new unified Germany. It apparently took something like 100,000 square meters of fabric, which stayed in place for a couple of weeks before it was all then recycled afterwards. But yeah, he's done so many things. Also, there's a place, I think it was in... Um, off the coast of Miami, where he wrapped 11 islands with 600,000 square meters of floating pink fabric. It's great to meet the man behind the art. I remember seeing the four horsemen of the climate apocalypse uh, just standing proud in front of the um, Houses of Parliament. And I just hope the people in that building can actually see it and listen to what those horsemen were saying to them. Uh, we need people like Jason now more than ever, particularly around COP, I think. But there are others out there um, all around the world, great artists doing their thing, adding to the noise, adding to a challenge to inspire our views of the world. And I definitely think it can capture people's imaginations. Um, just a few months ago, I sent out what became my most popular tweet. Um, and it was about an Italian fisherman called Paolo Fanciulli, who... Um, found himself being really frustrated by the industrial fishing boats that were coming in far too close to the Italian coast and fishing illegally, basically trawling illegally in the areas where he was trying to fish with his very small scale um, fishing operations. Um, but the officials just weren't doing anything about it. And he said, they don't care. Nobody is watching. So what he did is he took matters into his own hands and he had artists carve huge blocks of marble into dozens of beautiful sculptures. And then he sank them along the coast. And that's obstructing the trawling nets, so they physically can't operate in those areas anymore. And already the seagrasses and the ecosystems are starting to recover. And honestly, people really responded amazingly well to this tweet I sent out. And people were writing things like, this is an extraordinary story about the power of art. Art and culture are not luxuries. They are the very fabric of civilization. And without them, we would starve. Uh, someone wrote, art is resistance. Another person tweeted, artists are saving the world. And uh, I think my favourite of all, let's all be a bit more like Paolo. And yeah, you wonder what else, what other sorts of things people might get up to. Creative minds. I've also heard, I think, that Greenpeace is doing something quite similar to Paolo. Not yeah, around Italy and places, but um, in the another very romantic location, the North Sea. And they're dropping concrete blocks in areas to keep those industrial trawlers away. So they're obviously not as beautiful as, uh, as Paolo's sculptures, but still highly effective. And with perhaps with what we're seeing with Extinction Rebellion and others, maybe, you know, we're going to see more people dropping things in precious waters to try and protect them. So if you are thinking of doing that, just um, be cautious, work out what you're putting in, make sure you're not going to damage anything down there already. Not that we're encouraging people to drop things in the ocean, but you know what we mean. So thank you for this public service broadcast, and we shall move on to our next guest. 
Next, we're off to Venice to hear more about an amazing exhibition venue, the Ocean Space, in the spectacular San Lorenzo Church. This huge exhibition space, the largest by volume in Venice, is dedicated to scientific, academic and artistic engagement with the ocean. It's an embassy for the saltwater parts of our planet, encouraging collective action on the most pressing issues facing the ocean today. It was first set up in 2019 by Marcus Ryman, director of the TBA 21 Academy. I first met Marcus at I think it's about five years ago at the Royal Geographical Society in London, where we had a rather, let's call it creative conversation, exploring if people, we could start buying up chunks of the seabed to stop seabed mining. And well, as you can imagine, that's still a conversation in progress. So just to warn you, this conversation could really go in any direction possible. Well, I definitely want to hear some more about that uh, deep sea mining plan. The first show at Ocean Space was titled Moving Off the Land 2. It was created by the daring and original art legend that is Joan Jonas. Joan is a pioneer of video and performance art and is one of the most important artists to have emerged in the late 1960s and 70s. Her work has had groundbreaking impact around the world and it's a huge pleasure to welcome both Marcus and Joan to the pod today. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's so nice to meet you and to be here. Marcus, let's start, if we may, with the ocean space. What's your vision for it, and how can it help promote a deeper understanding of the ocean, and also perhaps its protection? I really want ocean space to be a place that acts upon its immediate environment, right? So it's, a, it's one thing about providing free-of-charge cultural and artistic programming through lectures and screenings and all of that. But on the other hand, we've just this year we're starting to take really physical acts of care and repair restoration into the program as well. So there's a, there's salt marsh restoration programs on the one hand, there's beach cleanups on the other hand that we promote and uh, provide through ocean space. And so the ambition is really not just to talk about um, the urgencies and the challenges, but directly take action and intervene. And why did you choose Venice? Well, Venice for, for many reasons, right? And, but one main reason that it is one of the places that is directly in, and massively affected by uh, the rising sea levels, the reality of the ocean is ever present. It's not so much about protecting Venice and, and safeguarding Venice as the kind of monument to the past, right? But it's really, uh, we're trying to think of Venice and, and be in Venice as a laboratory for the future. The exploratory soul of your organization, TBA21, is to take artists out of the studio and onto expeditions. They get to work with and alongside scientists and witness and inspire artistic creation as a direct response to what they're seeing and learning on the front lines of our changing ocean. But what actually happens at that intersect between artists and scientists? Uh, it's not necessarily so much what happens at the intercept between artists and scientists or art and science. It is, uh, it is what happens when you spend time together at sea. This time where, where you're in rather close quarters, there's no way to escape really. You're kind of exposed to the elements, you're exposed to the ocean. And if you want it or not, the ocean will move you. And I think uh, this moment where the artists are outside of the studio, the scientists are outside of their lab and everyone is kind of outside of their comfort zones, that's really where the exciting moments happen. And on the other hand, by pulling scientists into the conversation with artists and, and framing it as an artistic program, 
you also relieve the scientists from the baggage of their uh, of their discipline and allow them to think speculatively, poetically, and think a lot more freely than if they would be in the context of, of other scientists. And your first the inaugural exhibition was, was with Joan. So I'd love to know uh, more about that exhibition and, and why you two have been working together on it. I don't think there could have been a better way of opening uh, ocean space than with the work that we that we embarked on together. Joan is a legend in the art world, and uh, we always, you know, had a had a great admiration for her work. And then to be able to have the possibility to work with her and open ocean space with her was just uh, was just tremendous. So sad I didn't actually make it to the exhibition, but I really wish I had. But from what I've read and seen, it sounded truly, truly remarkable. So let me try and paint a picture of what I think it was like. So the first thing that you experience when you walk in is that you're struck with this massive installation that's hanging from inside the church's 500 square meter nave. It was a huge painting that traces the outline of a sperm whale in blue and white. And it's accompanied by the sounds of the whale's complex click and clang language that must have filled the space. And just imagining the acoustics of that church, the experience must have been extraordinary. And just below, there's a hand-drawn sign that's reminding you that the global population of whales has plummeted. And these magnificent creatures once walked the land before they actually went to sea. Um, so coming to you, Joan, where did your mind start when you began thinking about this exhibition? So I thought, how can I, you know, enter this enormous oceanic world? And the first thing I thought of as a woman also was the myth of the mermaid, which I came to believe maybe had some reality to it because the whales lived on the land and then went back to the sea. And I wove that in saying that we had a memory. We have a memory somewhere in our DNA of coming from the ocean. And um, that's how I entered the subject. I had seen a book of photographs of creatures from the very deep sea that we never see. You can't see them. And uh, so I'd say most of the people I know, we don't look at the sea. You know, now people are much more aware and informed. At that time, friends would come and say, I didn't realize we came from the sea and things like that. Why do you think we were so disconnected from the sea? I mean, why, where was that disconnect coming from? I think it's just that it's this big body of water that we don't see into. You know, we don't go down into it. And part of the attraction was for me to learn as well. I, I went to a lot of aquariums to film my um, footage of the fish, and that's the way I can see them. I'm not a diver. But I think for children, aquariums are very important, for instance, just so they're acquainted with these creatures that they can see in the good aquariums you know, when there's not a lot of music and color. And also, I just read a lot. I mean, I read a book, which I would recommend, um, uh, The Soul of an Octopus, and it's about this woman's interaction with the octopus. So I learned that fish are sentient beings, which is another thing I didn't know. And in this piece, one of my um, underlying desires was to show people and children these creatures, you know, this miraculous world. And you have, you've shown so much of this wonderful world to so many different people. The deep sea, even the shallow parts, most of us don't get to see those bits. So I wondered, um, yeah, I wonder what your thoughts were on, on what you hoped, what you hope still that, that people might, might hold on to and take away from your work when it comes to thinking about that relationship to the ocean. I don't know, you know, I never know what my audience takes away, but I think I want them to arouse their curiosity and their responsibility and their concern, really that. And 
because I also mention in my work what's happening. You know, I don't avoid the terrible reality that we're facing in relation to the deep sea. And even for children, that children know now, they know what's going on. So I think it's very important to inform people and to show them what we're losing. I think one of the uh, fantastic qualities that artists have is that they can make the invisible visible, right? That's the one thing. On the other hand, um, going to an exhibition, and so you you have the possibility as as a visitor of an exhibition to uh, encounter these uh, alternative realities, and you can step into an intimate conversation between yourself and the artwork. That's uh, what I appreciate so much about art, right? That it kind of gives you the possibility to enter into these deep conversations with the pieces and somehow they resonate for all of us differently. Joan, we can't imagine for a second that you're suddenly going to stop creating. What are you working on now? Are there any other ocean-based projects in the works or ideas of things you want to do? There are rivers under the surface of the ocean and um, who knew about them? I didn't. Anyway, what interests me is uh, this idea of sonar mapping and uh, use of the sonar mapping because the project I'm working on um, with the underground rivers, of course, they're all mapped. Nobody has ever seen these, these uh, river systems. So and my project is to make drawings of these river systems. And my drawings are all based on scientists' um, versions of the sonar map. So the whole issue of sound in the ocean is something that I could be interested about perception. I've worked with sound delay and so on. And sound is also a problem for the creatures in the ocean. You know, the sound of industry. I can hardly stand to hear about it because it's so painful to think that we're damaging their eardrums and, and their, their ways of moving and so on and so forth. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, exactly. And we've only just recently been had this uh, this pandemic situation, which is showing us that what happens when things quieten down and there aren't the ships and the planes and everything else going on and the, the oceans quieten down and uh, things go back to perhaps for a little bit how they used to be. And I think, yeah, as, as one of the mo clear motivations for both of your work is around having meaningful impact within society um, through challenging people's understandings and perceptions of the ocean and the impacts of the ocean. Um, yeah, are there aspects where the art and an artist can contribute more to inspiring the action that's needed in the short window of opportunity that, that we have to try and change the course? You know, I think, I mean, if I look at it over the course of the past 10 years, when we started engaging with the space, um, it's already tremendous to see uh, all of a sudden the, the amount of artists and organizations that are seriously engaging with and looking at the ocean, the amount of residencies that are happening on both the amount of uh, programs that are really seriously engaging with marine research and so on that is um, that's already tremendous i have met so many artists that have incredibly engaged and committed practices they're environmentalists they're activists they're, they lead vegan lifestyles they stop traveling by plane i think it is it is for organizations and institutions to step up and really look at our activities, look at our programming, and really intrinsically ask ourselves, is this all we can do, or is there is there uh, something else that we can do? Um, Joan, um, what would you like to see um, the ocean space doing next? The first thought that comes to my mind that, that I'm interested in um, is would be to follow up on um, how indigenous people perceive the ocean and time they know a lot more than we do about certain things. 
because they've lived there and they've, you know, they, they're much closer than somebody like me is or you, any of you. I completely agree. I think we have um, so much to learn uh, and, and particularly from uh, indigenous and tribal peoples around the world because they have been living uh, very close to their environments for, for thousands of years. And now so many of them are being pushed off their lands, whether it by force or by the effects of climate change. So they have an extraordinary story to tell. We've got a lot to learn. I mean, there are all these different ways that we could look at it, but those are the people who are being affected by the rising seas in a very direct way. Do go and check out the ocean space and keep an eye on when it's opening. See if you can get yourselves there. The website is ocean-space.org. So that's where you'll find all the updates of how things are looking. Well, fingers crossed. We hope it's going to be opening before long. And we wish you both fair winds and fair sails and look forward to hearing more about the ocean space and more about your work and your journey before too long. Well, thank you very much, Helen and Oliver, for having us. And um, all the best and uh, safe sailing. Can I say thank you? It's so nice to meet you and to be here. Thank you. Take care. Helen, wow. Uh, A couple of extraordinary conversations there. I don't know where to, to start. I mean, I think... What's rumbling around my head at the moment is this idea of the aesthetic. Um, in some way, artists today are challenging our aesthetic, how we see our world and our ocean. And it's it's moving slowly, but how and what they interpret of and what beauty means and what our relationship with nature really means is shaping our views of culture, our view and understanding of the natural world. What do you think? I love your ideas of the aesthetic coming in, but also just that science and technologies are really shifting our views of all of this as well, of nature, of the ocean, of ourselves, our place within it. So much is instantly available now um, with the internet, with phones in our pockets, with cameras in our pockets. And I really love that it's, you know, artists like Joan who continues to just keep questioning and asking how do we see the world and how can we interpret it and how do we bring science in with it and 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 shape all of these different views um, that, yeah, they're all changing and shifting and they have to be. We, ha- we need new views of humanity's relationship with the planet because things have changed so much in years, in decades, um, in centuries gone by. So what excites me is to think about how that's going to continue to change and what's coming next. There's also, the, I guess, the role of the artist as an activist or as an environmental activist or however we want to phrase it, uh, because that's been changing over the years. And we're seeing that with Jason particularly and with Joan, of course, and Marcus and others out there as well. That role of the artist as as an activist really getting more political about it. It can't be ignored what's happening to our world. And the artist has a critical role to play in that conversation. It does, because we're such visual creatures, aren't we? I mean, we want to see things. People want to know what things look like, even through an interpreted medium of, of an artist creating sculptures and paintings and so on. And what I particularly love, what I really love about Jason's work is that he's he's really making the use of the fact that putting something in the ocean is is kind of a radical thing to do. You know, he's he's cutting off the obvious view to his work most of the time. You've got to get your head in the water to really understand it and see it. Okay, we've got pictures of it and that's wonderful too. But to visit his artworks, you have to get in the sea. You have to be in the ocean. And that in itself just makes those messages that he carries in his work so much more powerful, I think. I'm trying to find a segue to your new book. I'm trying to find a way to talk about your new book. Tell us about your book. It's amazing. Do you have artwork in your book? There's the segue. 
I, I do. Um, I have beautiful cover artwork, which I love very much because I've been working with the same artist now for three books, a chap called Aaron John Gregory, who brilliantly interprets my ideas of uh, what I want the book to be about and the science and the visual aspects of the creatures I'm talking about. This book is about the deep ocean. So how on earth do you represent this big, huge space that a uh, few of us get to see? But increasingly scientists, you know, People in submersibles, fantastic remote technologies as well, are showing us views of the deep. So what I really wanted him to try and do was capture some of that essence of exploration, at least on the front cover of, of that the UK version of the book. So there's lots of pictures in the book, yes. Excellent. Um, well, that's great. I'm very relieved about that. So, Helen, the big question we've all been waiting for, certainly I have because you haven't told me yet, what is the name of your new book? Um, it's a good question because I'm terrible at titles and I've always found it incredibly hard to decide. And this one changed its name. Um, it's now called, drumroll, The Brilliant Abyss. Um, and uh, if you do have a read of the copy, I'd love uh, love to hear what anyone thinks. Um, and in fact, anyone listening in the UK, a small plug, but this is because it will raise some money. If you go to bookshop.org, um, you'll find I've set up a little bookshop of my own, Dr. Helen Scales. And if you buy it through that, then all the proceeds that I get, um, which is a, a small percentage, but I'm giving all of that to the Sea Changers, uh, British conservation charity. Um, so we can raise a little bit of money that way if you want to do it. Um, excellent. Well, if we want to learn more about um, Helen's book and want to see some images from there, or you want to see images or of some of the great work from Joan uh, and Marcus or from Jason, please do go to Catch Our Drift, our web portal. You can learn more about it there. That is the end of this wonderful episode, and we look forward to be joining you in a couple of weeks' time with, I'm not going to tell you what it's going to be, because you can find out when you tune in next, because we don't know. We're making it up as we go along. That's the nature of Catch Our Drift. We're explorers, we're exploring, we're making it up as we go. Maybe it'll be space, maybe it'll be film, maybe it'll be music. Maybe it will be Helen Scales talking about the brilliant numbers. Tune in and find out. <laughs> <laughs>